Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by state historian emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. We've just launched our Facebook and Instagram pages. Please follow us on social media to get the scoop on new episodes, behind-the-scenes photos, and information on upcoming programs. This winter, I read the book Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of the Lusitania by one of my favorite authors of narrative nonfiction, Eric Larson. As I read, I was struck by how many times he mentioned Theodate Pope Riddle the architect and owner of what is now the Hillstead Museum in Farmington, Connecticut. She was a passenger on the Lusitania when it sank. I knew there was only one person to call to get Theodate's first-hand story. My guest today is Melanie Bourbeau, senior curator at the Hillstead Museum. In addition to overseeing all aspects of the collections, care, stewardship, and exhibition design, she also manages the museum's extensive archives and that's where Theodate's story is going to be found. Welcome to the podcast. I know that most of us have seen the movie Titanic. That will help us to be able to envision the ordeal that Theodate went through. But let me just compare the two so that'll help me and us keep them straight. The British transatlantic luxury liner Titanic sank on April 15, 1912 with 2,224 people aboard after hitting an iceberg. The ship, thought to be unsinkable, only took two hours and 40 minutes to sink. With only 20 lifeboats, more than 1,500 people died. Five years later, the British luxury transatlantic liner the Lusitania sank off Ireland with a total of 1,962 people aboard, including 123 Americans. 1,119 people died. What was the one big difference? The Titanic sunk because it hit an iceberg. The Lusitania was a British passenger ship sailing into waters that had been declared a military war zone by the German government in its war against Britain and its allies in World War I. The Lusitania was sunk by a German submarine. Why did so many people feel safe sailing on a British ship with Britain at war? German submarines, known as U-boats for underwater boat, had entered the war in early 1915 and were armed with torpedoes. On April 17, 1915, the Lusitania left Liverpool, England on her 201st transatlantic voyage, arriving in New York on the 24th of April. A group of German-Americans hoping to avoid controversy if the Lusitania was attacked by a U-boat had discussed their concerns with the representative of the German embassy. The embassy decided to warn passengers before her next crossing not to sail on the Lusitania, and on the 22nd of April, they placed a warning advertisement in 50 American newspapers, including those in New York. Here's what was published. Notice, travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes waters adjacent to the British Isles, 
that in accordance with the formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travelers sailing in the war zone on the ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. April 22, 1915. Theodate Pope from Farmington had not seen that warning until she was on board the Lusitania and the ship was in the Atlantic Ocean. Melanie, who was Theodate Pope Riddle? Well, as you said, Mary, she is affiliated with Hillstead Museum. That was, she was an architect and that was her very first architectural project, a home for her parents. She went on to become one of the first licensed female architects in the country. She was licensed in New York State in 1916. She became a fellow with the American Institute of Architects in 1918 and practiced in both Connecticut and New York and maintained a New York office. Her body of work is not that large, but as the only child of a very well-to-do industrialist. She did not have to work for a living, but she had that ultimate freedom to pick and choose the projects that she wanted to work on. She designed homes and schools, um, both in Connecticut and in New York, and was also a philanthropist, very interested in supporting the community of Farmington. For instance, she started a cooking and sewing school in the village. She opened a tea room um, in an addition to her, her own home on High Street, and the proceeds from that tea room helped to support a village nurse for the community. So she was a person who very much gave back. She was very interested in the settlement house movement, and led a very, very rich life. And because of her personal resources and family resources, she also could devote tremendous amounts of time to the, the study, the personal study of spiritualism, which is inextricably linked to this Lusitania story. Why was Theodate traveling to Europe and who was with her? Well, she was traveling because she was... Um, and this goes back to the spiritualism side of the story, she, to lead into the story a bit, she had given $25,000 to the American Institute for Scientific Research in New York in 1906, a new psychical research organization created by one of the gentlemen who had been studying one of the trance mediums who she had had many, many personal sittings with both to contact friends from the beyond and both and also to just experience the trance sitting uh, process. And sh she was interested in it from a personal standpoint, but also very interested in what the psychologists and the scientists were trying to learn about these trance mediums and their attempts to debunk them and prove that they could actually do what they claimed they could do. But anyway, she became disenchanted with how this individual, Dr. James Hislop, was spending her money that she had given. She felt that he was misappropriating funds, that he was not relying on the most scientific methods. And a young protege, Edwin Friend, who was in his 20s, who was an academic who had studied at Harvard and who was a professor both at Harvard and Princeton and the University of Berlin, she wanted to 
and, and had offered to set him up with a position in Hislop's Institute. And when they became disenchanted with how it was being managed, Friend and Theodate decided to sail to England and meet with the British Society for Psychical Research to get their support for a new organization that the two hoped to open in Massachusetts. In Larson's volume, Dead Weight, he alternates the chapters. So one is from the viewpoint of the passengers on the Lusitania, who are having a very luxurious crossing. That was one of the fastest boats you would get there in luxury. The food was fantastic. There was entertainment. It was really a wonderful experience. And then he alternates that with a chapter from the submarine commander's viewpoint. In the Captain Schweiger, the submarine captain's own words recorded in the log of the U-20, which is a submarine that fired the torpedo that sank the Lusitania, he says, torpedo hits starboard side just below the bridge. An unusually heavy detonation takes place with a very strong explosion cloud. The explosion of the, of the torpedo must have been followed by a second one, either the boiler or coal or powder. The ship stops immediately and heels over to starboard very quickly, submersing at the bow. The name Lusitania becomes visible in golden letters, unquote. So, the sinking happens very fast, and it takes less than an hour for the ship to go down. What does Theodate say about her experience of being on that ship and its sinking? She wrote a very extensive letter to her mother in late June of 1915 and details it in you know, minute detail of what she was feeling, what was happening, um, and I'm happy to read an excerpt, um, a somewhat lengthy excerpt, but it's also good. <laughs> so postmark, June 28, 1915. And Theodate is writing this letter from Paris. My darling mother, when we pulled out of dock, I was in the writing room and saw then, the first time in the morning sun, the German threat. I said to Mr. Friend, that means, of course, that they intend to get us, though the name of the ship was not given. We were a very quiet shipload of passengers. I comforted myself with the thought that we would surely be convoyed when we reached the war zone. Friday morning, we came slowly through fog, blowing our foghorn. It cleared off about an hour before we went below for lunch. A young Englishman at our table had been served his ice cream and was waiting for the steward to bring him a spoon to eat it with. He looked ruefully at it and said he would hate to have a torpedo get him before he ate it. We all laughed and then commented on how slowly we were running. We thought the engines had stopped. Mr. Friend and I went up on deck B on the starboard side and leaned over the railing, looking at the sea, which was a marvelous blue and very dazzling in the sunlight. I said, how could the officers ever see a periscope there? The torpedo was on its way to us at that moment, for we went a short distance farther toward the stern, turning the corner by the smoking room when the ship was struck on the starboard side. The sound was like that of an arrow entering the canvas and straw of a target, magnified a thousand times, and I imagined I heard a dull explosion follow. The water and timbers flew past the deck. Mr. Friend struck his fist in his hand and said, By Jove, they've got us. The ship steadied herself a few seconds and then listed heavily to starboard, throwing us against the wall of a small corridor we had quickly turned into. 
We then started up the boat deck, as I had told Mr. Friend and poor Robinson, that was Theodate's maid, that in case of trouble, we would meet there and not try to run around the ship to find one another. The deck suddenly looked very strange, crowded with people, and I remember that two women were crying in a pitifully weak way. An officer was shouting orders to stop lowering the boats, and we were told to go down to deck B. We first looked over the rail and watched a boat filled with men and women being lowered. The stern was lowered too quickly, and half of the boatload were spilled backwards into the water. We looked at each other, sickened by the sight, and then made our way through the crowd for deck B on the starboard side. There we saw boats lowered safely from above. The ship was sinking so quickly we feared she would fall on and capsize the small boats, and it seemed not a good place to jump from for the same reason. We turned to make our way up again through the crush of people coming and going. We walked close together side by side, each with an arm around the other's waist. Mr. Friend wished me to join the throng of men and women crowding into the lowered lifeboats. He would not take a place in one as long as there were still women aboard, and I would not leave him. The bow was sinking so rapidly. Robinson appeared on my right. I could only put my hand on her shoulder and say, Oh, Robinson. Her habitual smile appeared to be frozen on her face. Mr. Friend said, Life belts! And I went with him into nearby cabins where he found three. We could see now the gray hull and knew it was time to jump. I asked him to go first. Robinson and I watched for him to come up, which he did in a few seconds, and he looked up at us to encourage us. I stepped over the ropes as he had and then jumped. I do not know whether Robinson followed me. The next thing I realized was that I could not reach the surface because I was being washed and whirled up against wood. I was swallowing and breathing the salt water, but felt no special discomfort. I had been swept between decks. I closed my eyes and thought, this is, of course, the end of life for me. And then I thought of you, dearest mother. I counted the buildings I had designed, the ones built and building, and I hoped I had made good. Quietly, I thought of the friends I love and then committed myself to God's care and thought, a prayer without words. Then for perhaps half a minute, I opened my eyes on a gray world. I could not see the sunlight because of the blow on my head. I was surrounded and jostled, by hundreds of frantic, screaming, shouting humans in the gray and watery inferno. The ship must have gone down. I opened my eyes later on the brilliant sunlight and blue sea. I was floating on my back. The men and women were floating with wider spaces between them. There were occasional shouts. I could see the crowded ship's boats far away. I saw an oar. I reached for it as my heavy clothes kept dragging me down. I lifted my right foot over the blade of the oar and it held me with my left hand. This helped to save me. I tried to lift my head a little to see for myself if there was not some aid coming. Then I sank back very relieved in my mind, for I decided it was too horrible to be true and that I was dreaming and again lost consciousness. This was about three o'clock. The next thing I was aware of was looking into a small open grate fire. This was half past ten at night and I was in the captain's cabin on the rescue ship Julia. I saw a pair of gray trousered legs by the fireplace and turning my head, I saw a man leaning over a table, looking at me where I lay wrapped in a blanket on the floor. I heard him say, she's conscious. A doctor came and picked me up, calling two sailors, who made a chair with their hands and lifted me into a motor, and in a few moments we stopped at what proved to be a third-rate hotel. I was left on a lounge in a room full of men in all sorts of strange garments, while the proprietress hurried to bring me brandy. 
The Englishman of our table, who had been so anxious to eat his ice cream, was in a pink dressing gown. He came and sat by me. Three days later, I was taken to Cork. That is just an astonishing first-person rendering of what happened uh, in that sinking. And it was so fast. They also weren't allowed to have other boats communicate with other ships to come rescue them because it was the British feared that if other ships went to the site of the first one that had been torpedoed, that they would also be torpedoed and lost. Mm -hmm. So there was no real help coming, to be honest. Um, I also wondered, uh, why didn't it help that there were more lifeboats? Because one of the things that came about because of the Titanic tragedy, the Titanic did not have enough lifeboats to support everybody that was on board, but that's they didn't worry about it because they thought the ship was unsinkable. So after the Titanic tragedy, they required ships to have enough lifeboats. So why didn't that help the Lusitania? And there are a number of reasons. One is that the fact that it was already sideways listing so far over, it complicated the launch of the lifeboats. Ten minutes after the torpedoing, when she had slowed enough to start putting boats in the water, the lifeboats on the starboard side swung out too far to step aboard safely so you couldn't get in one. The crew was also inexperienced in using them. The actual life vests that Theodate and her friend go find in the cabins were a new design, and a lot of people actually put them on incorrectly. So people that jumped in the water expecting that their life preserver was going to help them, often it did not because it wasn't worn properly. And then it says... Um, Many of the lifeboats overturned while lowering or loading. They spilled passenger in, passengers directly into the sea, which Theodate notes, and others were just overturned by the ship's motion when it hit the water. So the Lusitania had 48 lifeboats, more than enough for all the crew and passengers, but only six were successfully lowered, all from the starboard side. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. Let me tell you what the St. Louis Star and Times reported on May 8, 1915. The headline reads, Miss Theodate Pope, Rich Artist, is Saved. New York, May 8th. Miss Theodate Pope, the rich Connecticut suffragist and artist, was saved from the Lusitania. Her mother, Mrs. Alfred Pope, received a cablegram from Miss Pope today announcing her rescue. The museum has that telegram, and what struck me about that is that it has one word on it, which is saved. How was she actually saved? So that is also in this lengthy late June letter to her mother, um, and it, it's, it's the concluding portion of the letter. There was a woman on board the ship whose name was Mrs. Nash, and this is what Theodate wrote. Mrs. Nash, to whom, in a great measure, I owe my life, saw me pulled on board with boat hooks. The oar had worked up under my knee and kept me afloat. 
I was the last one rescued by that ship and was laid on deck with the dead. Mrs. Nash touched me and said I felt like a sack of cement. I was so stiff with salt water. She was convinced I could be saved and induced two men to work over me, which they did for two hours after, after cutting my clothes off with a carving knife hastily brought from the dining saloon. They say that one suffers greatly in being restored from drowning, but I was totally unconscious of it all, owing to the effect of the blow on my head and was unconscious for some time after breathing was restored. I also had several bruises above and below my right eye, which disfigured me by swelling and discoloration. I seem to have escaped several separate deaths in a miraculous way, and yet I truly believe there was no one on the ship who valued life as little as I do. I had told Mr. Friend one day as we stood by the rail that if the Germans did torpedo us, I hoped he would be saved to carry on the work we had so much at heart. I have tried to tell it to you carefully, but I cannot dwell on it. And then she signs her letter, Thy Theo. So what happened to her maid, Emily Robinson, and her friend, Edwin Friend? Well, as Theodate writes, Friend put on his life jacket and he jumped first and bobbed up. So the life jacket worked in that instance. We don't know. Robinson jumped, if she jumped, after Theodate. And as Theodate also said, she didn't she didn't know for sure if Robinson jumped or was just too frozen with fear and just stayed there and drowned. That phrase laid out with the dead just always that just strikes me because there were so many uh, people, there were so many bodies. It was such a tragedy. It was such an uproar. The fact that someone noticed that the date could possibly be resuscitated really is just astonishing. That talk about coming back from the dead. So I know Theodate wanted to let her mother know that she was okay. What kinds of letters, in addition to the telegram, did she send? Well, there were three prior letters to the one that we refer to informally as the Lusitania letter. Uh, The first one was written May 16th, nine days after the, the attack. And the first sentence is just very telling. She writes, my darling mother just a few words that you may see my writing. And most of that letter then refers to her experiences in London with what was going on with World War I. Then on June 2nd, she wrote another letter, and to this one, she attached her a copy of her new passport photo so that her mother could actually see what she was how she looked and she wrote my darling mother i enclose an extra copy of my new passport photograph that you may see i am getting on a bit you will see that i bought a fur coat with the money v gave me as i have not been able to get warm and then she also in this letter which i think is quite interesting references her personal physician who was in london And she writes, when I tell him my head feels unholy with misery, he takes me to play instead of giving me medicine. No one but Marjorie, who was Edwin Friend's wife and a promising young trance medium, by the way, can ever know what I am going through. I had built my future on what he, Edwin, was to accomplish. And then such a friend. I dream nights that I have found him and am exhausted when I waken. No one can know how I feel for Marjorie. The disaster is in the past, but our sorrow will never be in the past. And then the final letter that she wrote on June 7th, again, is mostly about the goings-on in London with World War I, but what she writes is kind of linking the two. 
I can only feel it all with double intensity because of the horror I have been through. And then she writes that there is this band that plays irrelevant music every night in Hyde Park, probably to keep the spirits of the Londoners up. But she writes how it shocks her every evening. It startles me as much as I would be were I watching a corpse which suddenly smiled at me. I am, however, better, a little better each day. That's wonderful. I'm glad she could get some kind of peace of mind after that. So what? how did this really traumatic experience affect her in the long run? Well, it had lingering effects for years and years and years. I, I can't imagine what she must have been going through to even get on a ship to sail home. Um, she arrived back home on August 1st, but that must have been a, tr- a unbelievable trauma in and of itself. But even years later, after her marriage in 1916, she and her husband uh, were traveling in 1921. Uh, they were sailing to Norway, and there doesn't seem to be any particular detail in our archives as to why they were going. It was perhaps simply a pleasure trip, but there were problems on board that ship as well. So during the summer of 1921, and and this account is written by uh, Theodate's secretary who was traveling with Theodate and her husband at the time, and she wrote, during the summer of 1921, while on a cruising trip to Norway, the ship suffered a series of sea mishaps, including an explosion of one of the ship's boilers, which killed five men and injured 15 others. I assume that means crew. And a few days later, the ship stopped for 24 hours because it was in the path of icebergs. The entire trip had the quality of a nightmare. And even though the ship was approaching cliffs that had jutted into the water and the ship was turning to avoid the promontories, it was a very traumatic experience. And she wrote also of how everyone had gone into their staterooms at 11 o'clock in the evening to go to bed, had only been there in their berths for about 20 minutes when the ship ran on the rocks. And Mrs. Riddle climbed onto a table to look out of a porthole and said to her husband, this is a damn silly joyride. Everyone got dressed, went up on deck, joining the other passengers where everybody remained for the rest of the night. And then later on, they learned, even though the ship did not take on water, even though it had run into the rocks, they heard that it had ended up in dry dry dock for three months for repairs. So that's one trauma. Then uh, when they were sailing home in September of of that year, so that would have been summer to early fall. Mr. Riddle regretted having to tell his wife that the ship they were to return on had burned in dock at Southampton and the passengers were to be transferred to a small ship which usually sailed between Glasgow and Quebec. Mrs. Riddle told her husband that she would not go on any ship that did not, quote, know its own way into New York Harbor. (laughs) Oh my God. And also this ship um, had been taken over from the Germans and its mechanism was not thoroughly understood. And all the way across the ship, the ship had a heavy list. The portholes had been closed and the stewards and stewardesses seemed nervous the entire time. And one morning upon awaking, Theodate was stiff with fright. She was alone in her stateroom 
as her husband had already dressed and gone up for breakfast. And she felt that if she moved even an eyelash, the ship would turn over. She was afraid to ring for a steward, but when he finally came in, she murmured, get Mr. Riddle. And upon his arrival, she asked for a pint of champagne and drank the entire contents on an empty stomach. And her secretary concludes the passage by saying, this was probably the best thing to do under the circumstances. Oh my gosh. With that first ship, if I just heard a boiler explode after my Lusitania experience, I would just be petrified. There would just be no getting me to even be able to get dressed or move. Right. And let alone be put on a small, non-luxurious ship, the German ship, to come back. I, I, I don't know. I can understand just being traumatized. It dredged everything up again. So then, after her husband, John Wallace Riddle, was appointed ambassador to Argentina in January of 1922, the couple sailed to the Argentine. And apparently, um, as they were heading down that way, Theodate made some remarks to the captain about, you know, maybe he, because of her past experiences, maybe he wasn't so sure she should be on the ship. And he apparently mopped his brow and said, well, Mr. Riddle, I do know how it makes you feel, but it makes me nervous. Um, So it was actually the return voyage um, and Theodate, I don't believe that John was with Theodate on the return voyage, but at that time there were, the ship lost control and began slowly turning in circles Four men were at the helm in relays for 37 hours. The captain explained that a valve stem pivot had broken and a new one was being made. After the new pivot had been placed, everything went well until the ship was within eight hours of New York when she suddenly listed at a sharp angle. The new valve stem pivot had become overheated and had jammed the rudder, causing the ship to turn in a swift circle, and the ship became top-heavy and almost turned turtle, as the um, secretary wrote. A wireless was sent to New York for tugs, and two black balls were hung on the mast to show the ship was out of control. The ship limped into New York Harbor, and everything worked out okay, but yet again, another mishap, And, and, and at that point... Theodate then was so completely traumatized that her personal physician wrote to the State Department and made it very clear that there was no way she was getting on a ship to go back to Argentina to serve as her husband's hostess. And so she never did go back. John periodically came home to visit, but she had had it. And they eventually did travel again. And in the 1930s, they sailed again to England and apparently without incident, finally. It's so surprising to me that one person could have that many ships have these serious issues, let alone sink. But mm-hmm. even the subsequent ones where boiler, boilers are blowing up and you've got, you can't steer a ship and it goes in circles for 30 hours. I mean, all of that just seems unbelievable to happen to one person. I can imagine how our really post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. kicked in and that isn't even something they knew how to treat in those days. I know Theodate felt strongly about filing a lawsuit. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So that, I don't know when she filed, but it wasn't settled until 1925. And it it just shows what moxie she had that she would 
tried to sue the German government in the first place. But what we have in our archive is the the settlement paper that was written in January of 1925 and signed by the American Joint Secretary and the German Joint Secretary in early February of 1925. And essentially, it is because of her loss of personal effects that valued $4,850 and her pain and suffering for which they awarded her $15,000 plus interest. So um, 5% per annum on both the $4,850 amount from the point of May 7th, 1915, which I figure in my basic math brain comes out to about $2,400 or so additional. And then the $15,000 with 5% per annum from November 1st of 1923. And what her attorney then wrote to her in a separate letter after the settlement was that the counsel for the United States agent said to him that the award in this case was one of the largest for the loss of personal property and for personal injuries which has ever been made. The attorney then concludes this letter, however, saying, it does not, however, seem very large or adequate to me. I am so surprised that she could even win a case like that and get any kind of cash settlement for that. It seemed like it was part of the wartime effort. So you're right. She had moxie. I give her credit for being successful with that. Good for her and her attorney. Yeah. Now, coincidentally, the last American survivor was Barbara McDermott, who was actually from Connecticut. She was almost three years old at the time of the sinking. Her father worked as a draftsman for an ammunitions factory in Connecticut, and his wife and daughter went on this trip, and she remembers holding onto her spoon as she saw the fellow passengers running about the badly damaged ship. So she actually died in Wallingford, Connecticut in 2008 at the age of 95. So there's another Connecticut connection. After World War I, it was revealed that the ship, the Lusitania, was containing 4 million rounds of machine gun ammunition and other types of battlefront type of materials. But does that make the ship a legitimate target during wartime? This is an argument that continues today. It certainly encouraged the United States to enter World War I, but they didn't do so immediately. Melanie, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks, Mary. This was great fun. Melanie has written several articles for Connecticut Explored, including Sightlines, Golf at Hillstead, and Communicating with the Great Beyond, Theodate Pope Riddle and Spiritualism. You can hear more from Melanie about Theodate Pope Riddle and Spiritualism on our Grading the Nutmeg podcast in episode 109, Communicating with the Spirits, Theodate Pope Riddle. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan of High Wattage Media. Please join us in two weeks for a new episode on Grading the Nutmeg. This is Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored.